choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. series entitled Worship to Witness, and we're talking about as Christians how it is that we move from true worship that is all filled to a witness in the world that is faithful of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we begin today, we're focusing on Isaiah 9 and verse 6 in this promise of a child who is born and a son who is given. And the, the uh, prophecy says the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called. And we're focusing upon these names in our series. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And today we come to the title Mighty God. Now we are in, in some ways prone to make this less than it really is in what Isaiah is saying. But these are formal titles of the child who is born and the son that is given. That's why I'm giving each week to each one of the, a week to each one of the titles. And so today we're going to take our time and look at mighty God, this Messiah who is promised, who will be mighty God. What does that mean for us as believers? How can we worship God more fully as mighty God, but also how can we bear more faithful witness to Him in the same. Let's begin as we have other weeks by understanding this title that Isaiah gives in the name. And the title is very simple. First of all, the first word is mighty. It's in the Hebrew language, the word gibor. Gibor. It simply means a mighty man or a warrior of warriors. It's a hero of heroes. And, and it's, it's explicitly associated, the root of this word is explicitly associated with warfare and strength, with the vitality of a successful warrior. And so the frame of mind to correctly understand this word is only framed within warfare, with the understanding of a battle or a fight. And this title of the Messiah who will come is God's representative that fights for God in the war or in the battle. And we know from the scriptures that God's might sets him apart from the might of any others. As we saw last week with his wisdom as well. 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, The weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. And that's not just of one man, but cumulatively speaking, of humanity. The second word is L, E-L. And this word is used in both ways. It's used as a generic title for God with a little e, uh, uh, and, and which would correspond to a little g, any God, but also of God. So it's a common name for God, but with the capital E, it also denotes 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that we worship, who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just give you one illustration of how it is used. In Psalm chapter 90 and verse 2, the psalmist writes, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are God. And so friends, today what we're going to entertain in our time and in the message today is we're going to look at this Messiah who is El Gibor. El Gibor, it sets God apart as the hero among heroes. And it, it, it's both uh, as a child who is born, so in the human capacity, but also as a son who is given, as a deity. It sets this Messiah apart, even among men and among gods. Isaiah tells us something very important with this title, that this Messiah who will come is able, capable, and ready to fight in order to save and to redeem. That's what Messiahs do. And what more important promise could be given to us in this than to know that the God who comes to save is able to do what He has promised. Have you ever doubted that in your life? Have you ever doubted not that you didn't know God's promise, but even when you knew what God's promise was, you questioned whether or not He was able to do what He had promised. You see... The word, the title for the Lord Jesus Christ that we study today says this to us, that God is able to do what He has promised He will do. And the coming of this one will prove that. I want us to consider the fuller context of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 9. In order to understand what Isaiah was fully explaining in chapter 9, we have to go back to Isaiah chapter 7. And we have to get a little historical context, if you will, for what he was saying. In Isaiah 7, it tells us in verse 1 that therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, it says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, you're familiar with that verse because we sing and we celebrate Emmanuel at Christmas, which means God with us. But I want you to understand the historical context within which God spoke to bring about that promise to us. In the first verse of chapter 7, excuse me, the verse I just read is verse 14, not verse 1 of Isaiah 7. In the first verse of Isaiah 7, the context sets for King Ahaz. And what's happened is Judah, of which Ahaz is king over, has just been victorious over Aram and Israel, who were allied together. And so Aram moves then to ally itself with Ephraim, another country of strength and power. That's an often uh, used practice in this day. If one country couldn't succeed in battle, they would become allies with another country to fight against the same enemy, right? If you're not my ally, you're my enemy. And the greatest bond between two enemies can become what? A common enemy, right? And so we see this in the Old Testament. 
And so Aram allied with Ephraim to try and overthrow Judah. And so in response, King Ahaz does something very interesting. He too made a move to ally himself with the king of Assyria, who was the strongest world power at that time historically. And the way he did this, listen, was that he took silver and gold from the temple treasury to buy Assyria's favor. So he took the money from God's treasury to put his trust in a superpower of the world. Friends, I don't know about you, but it's bad stewardship when we use God's money to put our trust in something other than him alone. And so we see that Isaiah was sent to Ahaz in verses 3 through 9 of chapter 7 and to his son. And he said this, he said, Ahaz, do not fear and do not lose heart. For what your enemy plans against you will not happen. You must stand firm in your faith. As opposed to what? To his riches, right? You must stand firm in your faith or you will not stand at all. So what Isaiah was saying to him is no matter how much money you may have in the treasury to buy the right friends who will fight with you, you will not stand because of your riches. You will only stand because of your faith. That was the challenge confronting Ahaz. And so between verses 9 and verse 10 of chapter 7, some period of time passes. And then we see that God in verse 10 and 11 commands Ahaz to ask him for a sign of promise. In other words, God says to Ahaz, I want you to ask me to give you a sign to demonstrate that my promise will be true to you. And Ahaz responds in what we understand as pious arrogance and explicit disobedience. When he trusts in something other than God. And Isaiah comes back to him. And he identifies Ahaz's disobedience. And that's when he gives this promise of a sign. Who would be Emmanuel in response to the arrogant disobedience of the king. So you see God is working his will among his people through his leader, but his leader is not listening to him, and he is putting his own trust in the treasuries of the world and in the powers of the world and in the wisdom of the world. But God says, I want you to ask me for a sign so that I can show you the promise I want to give to you. And Ahaz says, I don't need a sign from you. I've got your treasury. At first, it might seem a little heavy on Ahaz to be so hard on him. But if you study the language and understand the intricacies of what's taking place, it's never a very long step to move away from God and in the direction of trusting ourselves, It's one way or the other. And it's always in opposite directions. Ahaz demonstrated two fatal errors, friends. First of all, he trusted in his strength. And he trusted in his wisdom above God's. It may seem subtle, but Ahaz refused God's command. And his success, hear me, 
His success is what ruined him. He had just been victorious just before. And he felt as though he knew what was best. And we know this from 2 Kings chapter 16 that's providing historical commentary on what takes place. He, his success ruined him because here's what the writer of Kings said. He did not do what was right in God's eyes. You see, we're not subjecting or speculating on Ahaz as to what we think he might have done. Rather, the writer of 2 Kings is telling us what Ahaz has done, that he trusted himself more than he trusted God's word. You see, friends, when we trust our strength, when we trust our wisdom over God, no matter how small or insignificant it may seem, it denies God. It denies Him. Whether denial is direct in refusing to obey God's command or whether it is indirect in not considering God's command, our trust is ultimately placed in ourselves and not in God. And the Bible gives clear warning of this. Let me give you two passages that I think speak very well to Ahaz's situation, but also to our lives as well. Psalm chapter 33, verses 10, 11, and 16 says this, The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord, what? You know this. Stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generation. And hear me. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. Ecclesiastes, the great book of wisdom, the wisest man in all that has ever lived in the world, says these words, the strongest soldier does not always win the battle. Ahaz's first mistake was that he trusted himself in his success rather than God in the faithfulness of his promise. The second great mistake that Ahaz made was this. In arrogance, he pitted himself against God. He trusted his own strength, and he refused God. You see, friends, when your plan opposes God, you will never stand. All who oppose God will be put to shame. That's what Isaiah goes on to say later in chapter 45 and verse 24. For even the warrior's strength fails him when he opposes God, the prophet Jeremiah tells us. And then I want you to consider the plight of the man that opposes God from the psalmist's perspective. Here's what he says in Psalm 52, 5 through 7. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear and evil will laugh at him saying, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his own evil desire. That's what the psalmist is telling us. No matter how rational or how small it may seem or sound to us, denying God for self always reveals our pride and always leads us to defeat and to destruction. This is where pride leads us. Isaiah's prophecy then comes into this setting and he prophesies of mighty God and it stands in contrast to Ahaz's arrogant denial of God and of his strength. 
And it stands against each one of us when we do the same thing in our lives. That's the point of mighty God, this title for the Messiah who would come. What great kings are powerless to do, God always proves able to accomplish. But when you refuse or reject God's power for your life, you will never experience His strength in your life. When you reject or you refuse God's power that only comes by faith for your life, you will never experience God's power in your life. You will only experience God's mighty power in your life when by faith you trust Him instead of trying to do in your own strength, in your own wisdom, in your own ability. Friends, what I want you to see today is simple. That Jesus is mighty God. He is mighty God who fights for us in battle and gives victory to us. And I want you to understand that this is not only ultimate, but it's immediate for us. It's not only eternal, but it's here and it's now. It is the most real reality that we could have for our everyday walk. Today, I want to invite you to pick a fight in your life. And when I say pick a fight, I mean to pick the fight. I mean to antagonistically and aggressively go after that which is threatening your relationship with God. It may be your success. It may be your own strength. It may be your own power. It may be your own intellect. It may be anything that is sourced and rooted in you or the things of this world. But today, I invite you to pick a fight. It might not be to pick a fight. It might be to re-engage a fight. One that you've been avoiding because you've gotten beat down. One that you've been avoiding because you've been hurt or you have feared too great a loss if you were to engage it. But you know it's a battle that God wants you to engage. Now this battle may be against something that's threatening you. It may be against something that you need to conquer or it may be a battle for something that you need to pursue in your life. Either way, it is a battle that desperately needs for you to be starting by picking the fight. Either way, it's a fight that you've not engaged or you've disengaged from because it seemed too great for you to conquer. Now before you pick this fight, let me warn you with five big problems that are going to arise in your life. And as I walk through these problems, I want you to understand they are successively progressive for you, and they compound upon one another. The first big problem for you is simple. We lose sight of and we fail to look at the true God. We can see this in Ahaz's life. He lost sight of God because he had a little bit of success, and he became, if you will, drunk with his success so that he couldn't see God clearly. He failed to look at God when it mattered most. The first problem is the most common problem for God's people. Throughout the scriptures, the Israelites failed to look to God. They got consumed with their misery, they got consumed with their suffering, and they just simply chose not to focus on God. Moses reminded them in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, he tells them, who shows no partiality and accepts no 
bribe. What Moses was saying to them is the fact that God has brought you to where you are today should be a reminder of his faithfulness and not a a significant indicator for why he's not able. It's not a reason to turn away. It's a reason to turn to. And so when Isaiah prophesies of this son who is given, it will be a great warrior. He's saying that, that this son who is given will be powerful. He will be larger than life. He will be supreme above all warriors in all realms. And he's reminding us through the promise that we need to look to him. And listen, there will never be anything that can or may arise that will overthrow him. That's what the prophecy is saying to us. Mighty God promises that his Messiah will be sufficient for victory in any battle. Friends, it doesn't matter what the battle you pick today is. If it is a battle you know God is calling you to pick and engage, he will show up as mighty God for you and in your life. The question beckons, have you lost sight of God? Have you failed to look at God and believe that he was able to do what he had promised? See, here's our our big disconnect with problem number one. We believe more in the shallow, hollow, immediately present realities that are before us that we can touch and pinch. Pinch. I don't know. Because as soon as I said it, I know I'm going to hear about it later. Pinch. We believe in those more than we believe in the certainty and the surety of the promise of God. God's promise is greater than any reality you can put your finger on in your life right now. Whether you believe it's been accomplished or not. It's more sure than the person sitting next to you is in this place even now. And that's what mighty God is calling us to trust. There's a second problem, and this second problem follows closely on the heels of the first. The second problem is that we forget or we forsake God's glory and we fight for the wrong reasons. You see, once we forget God, only one person consumes our full focus, and that is self. We expect that God should be committed to me as I am. God, you say that you love me more than I do. Why don't you think about me more than I do, right? We love to defend our personal desires. We love to defend our selfish motives. We, we get busy with life's demands and we get consumed with life's struggles. Then when we fail and, and life begins to weigh us down, we question God and we ask him why he's failing us. That's not all that unfamiliar to any of us, I don't think. The psalmist reminds us who is the true king of glory, does he not? In Psalm 24, 8, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. You see, Isaiah's prophecy of mighty God points us to the only one who is worthy of all glory. It's the one who is the king of glory. And life's biggest problems arise when we live for other lesser glories than the king of glory in our heart 
and in our life. And mighty God is the promise that we live in when our lives are lived for His glory first and foremost in our hearts. So the second problem that we enter into when we forget or forsake God is, or excuse me, when we choose not to look to God is that we forget or forsake God's glory and we begin to fight for our own glory for the wrong reasons, which leads us to the third problem. Once we begin to fight for our own glory, we begin to doubt and question whether God is able. Nothing steals our hope and nothing steals our faith quicker than setting our own glory in front of us instead of God's glory before us. When our eyes don't stay fixed on God, our hearts can't remain strong in God. And God knows this. God knows this. You see, Isaiah confronts our unbelief as he later describes mighty God by saying this, the Lord will march out like a mighty man. Gabor, El Gabor, that's who we're talking about. This hero that is above all heroes. Like a warrior, he will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. Why do you think that the battle of Jericho was not won with the sword? It was won with the tongue. Because it was not the strength of man that won the battle of Jericho. It was the zeal of the Lord God Almighty that brought the walls down. And in every way and in every instant, just as he always has, God will bring you to a point of dependency either on yourself or upon him. And you'll have to ask the question, who will I trust at these times? Have you lost sight of God, begun to doubt Him, begun to allow the questions to enter your thinking about, is God able to do this? Can He do this? Would He do this? This leads to our fourth big problem. And as you can see, these are compounding. We lose sight not only of what we're fighting for, as we've said, but predominantly who we fight against and we begin to start fighting with others that we should be fighting alongside allow me to illustrate this problem with a very common scenario are you ready i'm warning you guard your toes how many of you as a child i'm sure you got mad at your mom, you got mad at your dad, you got mad at your brother, your sister, your cousin, and the dog got kicked because of it. Right? Do not sit there piously and act like that has not happened to you. Okay, maybe you didn't kick the dog. That is so not PC today, is it? But when you hurt, you can't stand to hurt alone. You want somebody else to either hurt with you or even better, to hurt more than you. You see, lashing out at others is an all too common self-protective measure that we employ as the DJ of our pity party to play the music while the party rages on. And mighty God, and this promise of a Messiah who will be, 
points us to the true adversary and shows us how he is fighting for us to guard us against all the wrong fights that we get ourselves into. All the problems that we bring upon ourselves. Why? Because we have forgotten God. We've lost sight of Him. We've forsaken Him. We've turned away from Him. We've questioned Him. We've denied Him. We've speculated about Him. We've refused Him and rejected Him. But we still have no victory in the battle in which we are in the midst of. And the pain becomes overwhelming the hurt the fear the insecurity arises we cast it upon other people's and that leads to our fifth biggest problem and this is where all battles in this world rise to we war in the physical realm against spiritual enemies spiritual authorities and spiritual principalities we war in the physical realm against spiritual enemies authorities and principalities. You see, in the great record of David facing Goliath, he reminds us not to fall prey to this problem when, after choosing stones for his slingshot, he states what? The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's, friends. And that's what I'm beckoning upon us to remember today and to turn our hope and our eyes to the Lord Jesus to recall in our own lives. The prophet Zechariah reminds us how it is that mighty God will fight for us when he says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You see, every battle in your life, no matter where it forms, is a spiritual battle for worship and for glory in you. Every battle. And Paul reminds that the weapons for divine warfare are greater than the battles of the flesh. For the weapons, he says, of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds in us. Christians, you always lose when you fight spiritual battles with fleshly weapons. Always. Always. The Christian armor is spiritual in nature because our battles are with spiritual enemies, spiritual authorities, and spiritual principalities. Yea, even in this world. It doesn't mean there are no physical manifestations of these battles. After all, David chose five stones and he finished it with a sword. But he still understood that the battle was the Lord's. You must weigh this own tension in your heart, never allowing the glory to shift to you and the trust into your strength. Christians battle with spiritual armor so we never forget that mighty God is the supreme warrior that fights for us. You see, all big problems in life's battles culminate in losing because we war in the flesh. All of them. You always lose every time you neglect the Spirit of God to engage the battles of your life, no matter the outcome of that individual battle. You see, you may find some success, just like Ahaz did in individual battles in your life, but ultimately, even what looked like success to you is loss because it shifted your trust from God Almighty to me Almighty. And it caused you to look away from the only one who can bring ultimate victory 
into your life. When Jesus walked on the earth, he engaged the true battle in the spiritual realm. It's interesting to me that the disciples walked with him every waking moment along the streets, but the demons are the one who would shriek and yell when he showed up in their presence. Tell me why that is, friends. And while the disciples spent their every waking moment and many of them sleeping with him, it were the demons who recognized who he was when he showed up. How did this happen? Because the demons knew Jesus in the spiritual realm. They knew who, his, uh, who he was and what his authority was in the heavenlies and not just in the realm of reality called the flesh or this world. You see, demons avoided Jesus because they knew he was mighty God and they were defeated foes. And yet how casually we think we enter into the presence of the Almighty One. Because we somehow are worthy to be there in and of ourselves. When you reduce life to only the physical, you take Jesus out of your corner. I love Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. It's just one of my favorite, uh, uh, shall I say, passages and stories. It's not very long, but it tells about the sons of Sceva. Sceva was a high priest. And because their daddy was a religious, important man, they thought they were important too and could live however they wanted to. And they went about trying to do what they saw Paul and the other apostles doing, casting out demons. And Acts 19 says they came to, some, uh, to a man who was demon-possessed and they tried to cast him out. And there was this harrowing silence for just a moment. And the demon said, I know Jesus. How does he know Jesus? In the spiritual realm. I recognize Paul, but I don't know who you are. And the verses that followed showed a can get opened on the sons of Sceva. And they got their posterior handed to them by a demon. And that, friends, is the way you live. When you take Jesus out of your corner and you begin to believe things about your life that you've used from Christianese and the titles and the labels and the lingo that you bear thinking you're a Christian when it has nothing to do with Christ and Satan's handing your posterior to you on a regular basis because you're fighting spiritual battles in the flesh. Jesus' authority It transcends to rule all realms. Every battle is won by His Spirit. If you want to experience the mighty God in your life, you must live in the physical realm by walking with Jesus in the spirit realm. Jesus as mighty God is our great hope because He's the mighty warrior that won in the spiritual realm, the realm that rules the world in which we live. You see, mighty God tells us that Jesus is the one who fights for us in the battles and gives victory to us in the war. That's what the prophecy and the promise of mighty God says to us. We don't see God's power more evident in our life because we give God no room to work. Did you know that in the New Testament there was only one thing, 
one thing that prevented Jesus from working in a mighty way. It was not when demons showed up and Satan demonstrated his power greatly in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, when Jesus showed up, the demons didn't dare speak up. They were just hiding, hoping they didn't get found out because they knew his presence was there before anybody else did. No, no, no. The demons, Satan himself, never prevented Jesus from doing any mighty deed. But in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, it tells us that Jesus could do no mighty deed for one reason and one reason alone, because of the unbelief that ruled in the people's hearts. Unbelief in your heart is the only reason that mighty God can't work mightily in your life. Wherever the battle may be, however you need God to work for you. Jesus can't speak mightily because we don't stop and and, and unplug long enough to hear from him. Jesus can't counsel us in his wonderful wisdom because we read his word for what we want from it, not from what he wants to give to us. Jesus can't act mightily for us because we're busy fighting the flesh with the flesh with no regard for the Spirit. You see, Jesus' mighty God means we submit all of life to trust in Him. Friends, God wants to show up mighty in your life. Not only to you, but in you and for you. That's the whole promise of Christmas. It's the whole promise of Emmanuel. It's the whole prophecy of mighty God that He brings to us. But God applies His might to bring His glory through His will, not ours. And if you're going to experience God's mighty power in you, you must position your life to need it and then trust him to receive it. For we all need God's mighty power to be real in our life. Why? Because daily demands reveal our own limits and our insufficiencies, do they not? When was the last time a day got the better of you? Probably not that long ago, the way we live. When was the last time a news headline stripped that last ounce of hope out of your heart and said, man, I, I just, you actually started to believe the headlines. See, every battle in this life, both great and small, it doesn't matter how small it is, doesn't matter how great it is, is but a battle of the great war in life, which is a war for the soul. It's a war for the soul. The timeless battle is that man has always tried to do it for himself. Always. As long as we are content with our doing, we'll never experience the mighty power of God being for us. We cannot live this life and know true victory in our own strength. We need the supra-supreme one, this mighty God who will fight for us and give victory to us. You see, true victory in this life only comes by faith and the power of the one who is mighty God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the child that was born. He is the son who was given So I want to urge you today to place your faith in this mighty God. Move the battles of life from the physical realm to the spiritual realm so so Jesus can show up as mighty in your life and to you and for you as you need him to. And I, I want to just beckon upon us with three simple actions, and I'll cover these very quickly for us. The first one is simple. It's 
humble yourself before God. It was the point of failure in Ahaz's life, and it will become the greatest victory in your life. Humble yourself before him. Every person holds a measure of confidence in their own strength and weakness. But humility is Jesus' example and his model to us. It's not a matter of dormancy or inactivity or weakness, but rather it is active, complete surrender to God. 1 Peter 5 and 6 tells us, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. When you humble yourself before God and you trust in Jesus, He will act mightily for you as He works mightily in you. Humble yourself before God. The second action I want you to understand you need to take today is to place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not the incomplete work. It's, not, it's no longer the work that may come. It is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so today, you don't even have to beckon only in a promise of God, but in the fulfilled completion of that prophecy and that promise in the Lord Jesus Christ. When he hung on the cross and he took our sin upon himself and he satisfied the wrath of God against us and he separated us in his salvation from our sin as far as the east is from the west by bringing us into intimate relationship with God the Father reconciling us perfectly by rescuing us completely that's what it means to trust the Lord Jesus Christ And we know God was pleased because God rolled the stone away. God called the name of Jesus and brought him out of the grave. And God is the one who sits with Jesus in the heavenlies. Hearing from him your name as he intercedes for you for salvation. Whatever you're trusting today. I beg you, turn away and trust Jesus. Do not trust people. Do not trust self. But in every way, as wonderful counselor, Jesus has the perfect plan. As mighty God, he is able to accomplish it. God knows your life better than you do. No problem is too big. No desire is too great. No circumstance too impossible. But do not place your trust in self. Do not place your trust in God and other things. Put your hope in God, in God. So often we think of trust as an actionless deed, but it's never actionless, friends. When the Bible tells us to trust, it always includes an action. It might be turning away from the current path, practice, or pattern that your life it is. It might be turning to another practice that God is leading you in of obedience But trust in God always leads to an act of obedience, even when that obedience is, don't move. Right? We see that in Scripture as well. Trust in God may lead you to be dead still, but it never leads you to dormancy. And that leads us to act number three. Stand and watch mighty God act in your behalf. You see, God warns Ahaz in verse 9, if your faith is not strong, He didn't tell him, if your bank account is big enough, if your bicep is strong enough, if your allies are able enough, no. If your faith is not strong, you will not have strength enough to last. 
Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, verse 13. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You see, it's at that moment right there that trust moves completely into the hands of God. Stand firm doesn't necessarily mean to stay on your feet in one spot. Rather, it means don't lose hope and give in because you'll be strengthened to keep on living. Friends, hear me in this. Evil cannot overcome you as long as God is armoring you. Faith in mighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ, makes all the difference in life's battles. Sometimes victory comes not in conquering, but listen, listen, in persevering. Sometimes victory comes not in conquering, but in persevering. And that may be the very thing God is calling you to today. To hold on for one more day. To trust. To trust what seems like an eternity to you. But to stay focused on Him in this. See friends, mighty God does His best work when we are fully and desperately dependent upon Him. He is our strength that brings our victory as we persevere in faith. I'm going to ask the worship team to return. Will you listen to me in these closing statements that I make for you? Few people will struggle to worship God when life seems good. When things are going so well. But when life feels larger than God, we will question Him, we will doubt Him, we will grow anxious, and we'll disbelieve everything, including God. But I want you to hear this analogy, and that's what I want you to put your trust in today, in the Lord Jesus. God is as real when we hide in the dark echo of the cave as he is when we dance joyfully in the rain. God is as real in the dark echo of the cave as he is when we dance joyfully in the rain. And friends, God is as able to deliver you from the darkness of that cave as he is willing to overflow joy in you as you dance. See, It's just a simple, small step of faith for you to trust. And right now, I would say this to you. God is fixing himself firmly in you to show himself mighty for you. Will you trust him? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, as we prepare to come to your table, Lord, we prepare our hearts by asking your spirit to come and to search us out, to try us and to see if there be any wicked way in us. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to do that, to help us in this time. And Lord Jesus, 
where unbelief, where doubt, where open rebellion rests in us. By your Spirit, turn us in faith to trust in you and in you alone. Even in this time, 